Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am so excited today um, to have one of uh, one of the people I think is most influential in legal education. Erwin uh, Shimerinsky needs no introduction, and I could spend 45 minutes introducing him, but I won't. He is the dean of the Berkeley Law School, the University of California. Before that, he was the founding dean at the University of California, Irvine. Before that, he was at Duke. Before that, he was at USC. He graduated from Northwestern and Harvard. Um, he's the author of, I think, 12 books, but that might be wrong. It could be a little bit more than that. Your resume says 200 articles. I think it's more. Um, and uh, his latest book has a title that I am so jealous of, and I wish I had titled my book this title because it's a better title than my book. It's coming out in September. It's called Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism, and we're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes. Erin, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Eric, thank you for those kind words. It's truly my honor and pleasure to do this with you. Um, I'm going to do this quickly. Okay. Um, so let's start with this. Um, I wrote a blog post uh, about a week after the term calling it the week, the week from hell. It's about eight days of five horrific Supreme Court cases, one on guns, two on religion, of course, abortion, and the Native American case, which is under-talked about. And I'm not a scholar in that area, but the scholars I know in that area were apoplectic about that, as was Justice Gorsuch. Um, my first question, before we get to originalism, what was your emotional reaction to this term, and how did you um, deal with that? Sadness. Yeah. Anger. In one sense, it wasn't a surprise at all. Obviously, the abortion case wasn't a surprise. We saw the leaked opinion on May 2nd. But more generally, once Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away as replaced by Amy Coney Barrett, we knew there were five staunch conservatives, Thomas Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, we know John Roberts overall is very conservative, and we know what the conservative agenda is. It's just the issues that you mentioned. The conservative agenda was to overrule Roe versus Wade, to obliterate the wall separating church and state. The conservative agenda was to very much expand gun rights. And one thing you don't mention is to dismantle the administrative state. Right. And we also saw that on June 30th. Right. Um, were you at all surprised about the tone of Alito's opinion when it actually came out, as opposed to his his draft, which, you know, sometimes sometimes justices circulate drafts they know are going to change dramatically, and, and they do that for a reason. But in this case, it really didn't change very much. That's That actually did surprise me a little bit. I was surprised by the tone on May 2nd when the opinion was circulated, when it was the leak in Politico. And some of the language was quite harsh. I mean, in the draft opinion, and as you point out in the final opinion, it says that Roe versus Wade was, quote, egregiously wrong and exceedingly poorly reasoned. We have colleagues who may have written articles years <laughs> ago that we disagree with, but I wouldn't say their article was exceedingly poorly reasoned. And we've got to remember, Roe versus Wade was seven to two with three Republican appointees in the majority. Planned Parenthood versus Casey that reaffirmed Roe was five to four, and all five justices in the majority reaffirming Roe were appointed by Republican presidents. To say that none of them had to do legal reasoning is truly insulting. I, I also I agree with all of that, and I, I, I thought there were two other things that really affected me. And as you know, not because of any abortion issues, but because of my 
general philosophy about the Supreme Court, I've always thought Roe and Casey were wrongly decided, but no no worse than hundreds of other cases that in Siegel's fantasy world were wrongly decided. But it did surprise me how they treated Souter, O'Connor, and Justices Souter, O'Connor, and, and, and Kennedy, because those are three incredibly important Supreme Court justices. They're all Republicans, as you just said, and, and, and Alito treats all three of them as if they were hacks. And that, that really did I wasn't surprised they took apart Roe, but I was surprised they took apart those three justices. Now, and not just in Casey, I don't think. First, I must say, I believe Roe and Casey were correctly decided. Sure. Second, I did find the insulting tone of Alito's opinion gratuitous, and that's what made it surprising. Like I remember saying after reading the leaked opinion that I would expect if it was the final opinion, it would be toned down. It was hardly changed at all. And I think this shows the attitude of these five conservative justices uh, precedent. I think it shows the attitude of these five justices towards their predecessors. So, Erwin, um, this podcast gets law professors, lawyers, and non-lawyers. So um, I want to – all the, the law professors listening to this will know this, but others may not. I think it was 1989. You wrote a foreword to the Harvard Law Review, which is about as prestigious a thing as a law professor can be asked to do, I think. You were pretty young at the time. It's quite an honor. Um, and I cite that. It's called The Vanishing Constitution. I recommend to everybody, especially now, that they read that article. But I'm bringing it up for a reason relevant to this term. One of the many things you said in that article, and by the way, that article deeply influenced my legal career, um, was that at the end of the day, at least when we're talking about Supreme Court constitutional litigation, there's no way to escape the balancing of values. And, and you begin the article that way, you say it in the middle, and you end the article that way, as if people couldn't, you know, and it's a long article. Um, Justice Thomas's opinion in the gun case, while the tone wasn't quite as acerbic as, as, as Dobbs, I felt was actually much worse. It explicitly disclaimed what you say is inevitable, and I agree with you, it's inevitable. How did you feel reading that nonsense? Well, first, thank you for the kind words about that article from now over 30 years ago. <laughs> Second, I do want to stress the point I made then and that this term showed is it's all about the values of who's on the court. Why is it that the Supreme Court ended abortion rights, aggressively protected gun rights, obliterate the wall separating church and state. It's all about the fact that we have very conservative justices and this is their ideology. You know, they want to pretend that it's about the original meaning of the Constitution. But unless you believe the framers' intent and the Republican platform are identical, we know what it's really about. In terms of Thomas's opinion, it was the most originalist opinion in all of American history. Now, for those who aren't familiar with it, Original is the idea that the meaning of a constitutional provision is determined when it's adopted, and it can only be changed by the amendment process. And Eric, you've written a brilliant book criticizing originalism. Justice Thomas' opinion not only uses originalism for defining the scope of the Second Amendment right, but he does something we've never seen before. Usually, once there's a constitutional right, the government can interfere with it if it meets what's called the appropriate level of scrutiny. And for a fundamental right, the government can interfere with it if it can show that its action is necessary to achieve a compelling purpose. So the government can interfere with freedom of speech or free access religion 
or discriminate based on race if its action is necessary to achieve a compelling purpose. Justice Thomas' opinion expressly rejects that. He says it doesn't matter how compelling the purpose is. We're not going to look to the end of the means. The only type of gun regulation that's allowed is if it's a type that was historically permitted, meaning 1791 when the second was adopted, or maybe 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified. This is the first time the courts ever used originalism, not only to define whether there's a right, but also to determine when can the government act. Yeah, it would, I, I've, I've been on a Justice Thomas kind of um, mission recently. Um, I have a question. I, people who listen to my podcast know I generally send out a very broad set of talking points, but then we veer. We're about to veer for a minute, so this isn't fair to you, but I, I want to ask you. It's a, combina- it's a combo question. Um, Justice Thomas has written the Establishment Clause does not apply to the states. Yet, the Second Amendment does, and even more interestingly, the Free Exercise Clause does, in the same constitutional amendment as the Establishment Clause. I don't know any other human being on the planet who thinks the Establishment Clause does not apply to the states, but everybody, everything else does. I have two questions about this. How wrong is that? That's the first question. But even more importantly, I think, Erwin, I have a hard... Justice Thomas's agenda is clearly the agenda of the Republican Party. It's not debatable, and I've documented it many, many, many times. But he even goes farther. I know many... And and, and so my, my, my second question is, I can't get lawyers in the Federalist Society or law professors there who I respect and I think are well-meaning and, and, and um, you know, trying to do the right thing to understand how terrible Justice Thomas is. I, I think his jurisprudence is the worst on the court. I think the, I, I, he's had ethical lapses. He didn't file his wife's taxes and on and on and on. First question, how wrong is he about incorporation? And, and second, why, why is he the hero of the Federalist Society when his, he goes much farther than even they do other than maybe their le- the leadership? Let me take each of those questions in turn. With regard to incorporation, I think if you want to be an originalist, it's very hard to argue that any of the Bill of Rights should be incorporated and applied to the states. I think it's best equivocal that the drafters, the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment thought that they were doing through the 14th Amendment was applying it to state and local governments. There's certainly a debate, and it went on in the 1930s and 40s into the 50s about it, But if I were to just looking at the historical record, I think there's a strong argument that the Bill of Rights doesn't apply to the states. So states could interfere with free speech in any way they want. They could people with death without counsel. And that's unacceptable given how we look at the Bill of Rights today. Now, Justice Thomas has said the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment was meant to keep Congress from creating a national church to rival state churches. So I'm going to be an originalist as to that and say the Establishment Clause doesn't apply to the states, but I'll let the rest of the Bill of Rights apply. Right. There's a tremendous inconsistency there. And the only thing I can say is, since Justice Thomas has such a very narrow view of the Establishment Clause, very little would violate it for him anyway. But your listeners should recognize, if the Establishment Clause doesn't apply to the states, a state could declare itself as having an official religion. It could coerce religious participation. There would be no limit whatsoever. And that's Justice Thomas's views. And that leads me to your second question. There's no doubt that Justice Thomas is the most radical of the justices. He is the one who most explicitly said that precedent should be given no weight in constitutional law. And that's literally what he said. (laughs) You can go through so many places 
where his view is more extreme than anybody else, not only the current court, who has ever served on the court. The ethical lapses are troubling. It's more than a decade ago that over a few years, he didn't report his wife's income. And his only defense was, I misread the form. There are criminal defendants who, from misreading the form, didn't even get to have their day in court. And if I can interrupt, Erin, he did file forms for some years. He stopped filing them when she started working for the Heritage Foundation, which is inextricably intertwined with the Federal Society. Sorry, go ahead. So at any rate, the point is the ethical lapses. I think just in this year, when the issue came to the Supreme Court as to whether or not they should grant emergency relief, blocking the availability of Donald Trump's emails from the time around January 6th, eight to one, the Supreme Court denied review. The only one who wanted to give relief to Donald Trump was Clarence Thomas. And we now know that it's likely that his own wife's emails were implicated. That's the kind of self-interest that should have disqualified him. It's not a close question. Um, so I think the criticism of him is completely appropriate. But my answer to your question, Eric, is he's become a hero to the right. He's the champion more than anyone else in over a long period of time. He's been on the court since 1991 of the far right position, and they're not going to take him on. If he serves six more years, he's going to be the longest serving justice in American history. And it's likely that he will serve six more years. I want to give the, um, the listeners two other examples of his how extreme he is. He believes that Gideon versus Wainwright should be reconsidered. That's the case that says indigent defendants charged with felonies can get, you know, um, uh, a paid attorney by the government. I don't think any other justice would follow him down that road. I could be wrong about that. And he's also said that children have no First Amendment rights at all. Children in schools have zero First Amendment rights. I'm sure no other justice would agree with that. And no Fourth Amendment rights either. Right. It, it, it really is. And, and I, I, I am very frustrated these days in not being able to get moderate Republicans and moderate conservatives to see how extreme he is. I think he's Scalia's placeholder, I think, maybe. And that's... He's more radical than Scalia. Yeah. I mean, Scalia described himself as a faint-hearted originalist. Thomas is not a faint-hearted originalist. Scalia, at least in some instances, would give way to precedent. Thomas is the only justice I know who said precedent should be given no weight whatsoever. In fact, in a speech this spring, he said relying on precedent is just, quote, laziness. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. Okay, your book um, coming out in September, I believe, Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism. You're much too busy to be on social media, but I spent the morning on Twitter um, talking about originalism because Will Bode, a professor I respect very much, wrote a horrific column in the Washington Post uh, about originalism and history, and some other law professor responded to it. Um, you, your book claims that it is flawed, dangerously ideological, and um, incoherent. So let's start with flawed, and then we'll go from there. Sure. And I've got to say, as I mentioned before, in writing my book, I so benefited from yours and cite extensively to your book. Speaking of which, Aaron, I need to disclose that I did, I was asked to blurb your book, and I did. I should disclaim that oh, to the audience. thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for doing that. And, okay. and I... And um, my disclaimer is I'm not on social media, so I did not see any of the Twitter. Um, um, in terms of originals, let's start with the basic question. Does it make sense to have the Constitution in 2022 
be limited to the views of those in 1787. We live in such a radically different society. It's an absurd question to try to say, what did the framers intend with regard to issues they couldn't have imagined? You mentioned one of the religion cases is about whether or not a high school football coach at a public school has the right to pray on the field after football games. So how do we answer the question? What did the framers of the First Amendment in 1791 think about the right of high school football coaches <laughs> at public schools to pray on the field? Or what did the framers of the Second Amendment think about the ability of the government to prohibit AR-15 assault rifles? It's an absurd question. Now, I think that it's also an impossible question because how are we going to determine, even if we could somehow know what they were thinking? Um, originally, originalists wanted to focus on the intent of the framers. It's quickly pointed out why that's terribly flawed. There are too many people involved in the writing and the drafting of the Constitution. We have incomplete records. We can't really know what their intent was. So then originalists said, well, we're going to look to original public meaning. But that assumes there is an original public meaning to be discovered. Usually there are many meanings for any constitutional provision. So ultimately my point, and I know it's yours, either we're committed to following the specific original public meaning or intent of the framers from long ago, which makes the Constitution repugnant in many ways, or we have to define the words of the Constitution so abstractly that anything becomes permissible. So either originalism leads us to abhorrent results or it becomes non-originalism. I think all of that is right. And I think, you know, they, they try to get away with um, the critiques by Jeff, Jeff Powell and some other people in the 80s. That you, looking for intent is too hard and, and too manipulable. So Randy Barnett and Keith Whittington and others, they've both been on my podcast, um, made the move from original intent to original public meaning. And I think that move is actually worse. I, I, I'm, I'm with uh, Richard Kay, who's a very thoughtful, I disagree with him, but a very thoughtful originalist at, at University of Connecticut, um, who says, at least the intent is empirical. I mean, in a way, we can at least see what they wrote, see what they said, see what they talked about. This idea of an objective public meaning, or I just think it's dumb. I hate, to, I, I don't, I mean, these, these, some of these people are friends of mine, but it's a, it's a dumb idea. Well, it the point of originalism is to try to constrain the judges and justice to interpreting the Constitution. Original public meaning doesn't provide any constraint because you can come to almost any result by saying, well, that's the original public meaning, especially if you decide it's going to be at an abstract enough level. Take the Second Amendment, which we were talking about. Yeah. The issue before the Supreme Court this term was whether a state can require a permit to have a concealed weapon in public where the person wanting the permit has to show a safety need for a concealed weapon. How do you answer that question based on the original public meaning of the Second Amendment? It was a different society. I mean, there weren't cities like exist today. Weapons didn't exist then like it exists today. We're again asking, what did the framers think about to a question they couldn't have contemplated. And I think it's, and I think, I think that's well said. And, and it's even worse than that. So Professor Larry Solom, who is considered also with Whittington and Barnett, the three most important, I think, new originalists of the 1990s. Larry Solom has said that, has, has conceded, which he has to, the historical point, 
that the framers of the 14th Amendment, the ratifiers, the voting public, the original public meaning of the 14th Amendment did not protect women. This is not a debatable proposition. They couldn't vote at the time. They had no right to vote. They were the property of their husbands if they were married in many states. They couldn't be lawyers, as the Supreme Court upheld a few years later. But, he says, that's because they were wrong about women's abilities. <laughs> so judges, he's really written this many times, and even in response to me. Um, so they were wrong about women's abilities. And judges are not bound by the factual mistakes, I think values, uh, t- judges today are not bound by the factual mistakes of the ratifiers. And thus, today, we know women can be lawyers and doctors and, and, and et cetera. So today, the 14th Amendment does protect gender discrimination. If you, if you allow that move, as you say, isn't everything on, on the table? And in fact, Justice Scalia said on several occasions that he believed that the Equal Protection Clause didn't apply to sex discrimination because that wasn't part of the original meaning. Right. You're right. If you take Professor Solom's point, he says, well, if the premise of an earlier decision or the premise of the framers, to be more specific, was actually an error, then we don't have to follow it. Well, I think you can open the door to anything by that view. Let's take Brown versus Board of Education. I think from an originalist perspective, there's no doubt that Brown was wrongly decided. The same Congress that voted to ratify the 14th Amendment also voted to segregate the District of Columbia Public Schools. Now, an originalist either has to accept that Brown was wrong to decide it, which I think makes originalism unacceptable, or the originalist has to do something like what Solem says, say, well, it was based on false factual premises. Or take the example you give with regard to sex discrimination. Was it a wrong factual premise or was it a wrong value premise on the part of the framers? Take the example of gay marriage. I could certainly say that the framers didn't anticipate gay marriage, but they were wrong on the facts with regard to same-sex sexual activity. Right. Either it's absurd, repugnant results, or it becomes indistinguishable from non You can justify anything by saying, well, they were wrong, we're right, we can do what we want. And, and Loving versus Virginia is even another example. The, the, uh, the ban on interracial marriages there's no originalist way to get around, to, to, to get to loving, I, I don't think. Um, so I, I agree with you about that. I want to say something about your book, and, and I, I, I know I don't want me to embarrass you, but um, including mine, there have been many, many, many books written about originalism. Um, one of the many reasons I loved your book, Erwin, and the reason I want people, especially the non-lawyers listening to this, to read it is because you have an amazing ability to write for sophisticated law professors and a lay audience. And your book really does, um, you know, it's very hard to do that. I've tried in my life to do that. It's very difficult. You do that great in this book. So even people who think they know about originalism and and the critiques, they need to read your book because it's really splendid, uh, not just in substance, but in style as well. And and I don't know where you find the time to do it, but congratulations to you. Uh, So that's so kind of you. Thank you. (laughs) You know, I have mixed feelings about the timing of the book. On the one hand, I wish I could revise it in light of the decisions of June. Mm-hmm. There's powerful examples of originalism and tragic decisions because of it. On the other hand, I'm glad with all the attention to the decisions, it's going to come out soon. Right. Um, I, I wish there was some way that it was electronic. We could just go back and say, <laughs> well, let me add this and let me add that. doesn't work that way for published books. Um. I'm going to throw another curveball at you. 
um, and and um, as a dean of, of one of America's great law schools, I, I you can duck any of these questions if you wish. Um, I, I've been writing a lot about Justice Scalia, and in fact, I'm 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 writing. In, I know this is hard to believe, but in a law review in India, because I want these views to be worldwide, not just domestic. You're the dean of a law school, and I know how you have to bow. And I know your main job, I think, probably is to raise money, or at least that's how most, you know, that's sadly what a lot of deans have to spend their time on. Um, the George Mason Law School is now called Scalia Law because they were given $10,000 or more by the Koch brothers and then another 10000 you know, huge amount, $10 million, excuse me, and then 30 other million dollars. Harvard's, Harvard has a chair in law now named after Justice Scalia, and the family that funded that chair is actually a guy who ran for office in Colorado and had to drop out because he used a racial slur. Now, my friend Steve Sachs, who's very thoughtful, a thoughtful originalist, um, has that chair. I'm not criticizing Steve. I I have criticized strongly Harvard and George Mason for naming their law schools after a racist, sexist, homophobe. And I have the evidence to prove it, and I've written it now 15 times, not just on the court, but off the court. My question to you is, what should a well-meaning dean do in that situation? It's an enormously difficult question. On the one hand, there are things we can't, shouldn't, won't name after. On the other hand, additional money for the school matters in terms of scholarship for students, support for faculty, and how do you balance that? Um, I had to face that here at Berkeley the building where I sit was known as Bolt Hall. Right. Many thought that the law school was called Bolt. And it turned out that John Bolt was a terrible racist and had said many anti-Asian, anti-Black, anti-Semitic things. Now, in this instance, no gift was tied to the naming. It was in honor of him, but without a requirement. And after going through an elaborate process and a very controversial one, we've taken the name Bolt off and no longer use it. So there's obviously situations where we have to say, we just can't name for this person. And yet on the other hand, when I've had some controversial gifts, I've also been very aware turning down the money has a cost too. Yeah. Um, I don't think it would be politically realistic to name this law school, the Antonin Scalia School of Law, no matter how large the gift. Um, but there are gifts where it's a, it's a hard call as a dean because it's very hard to turn down money. So one of the things I mentioned in this is that um, I, I, I get that and, that. and that's true for maybe 98% of American law schools. My brother once worked for Harvard University. My understanding is Harvard Law School and Harvard University have effectively unlimited endowments. If there's a law school that could refuse the money, it would be Harvard Law School. Um, I have a lot of friends at Harvard, so do you. You went there. But, I mean, you know, we've, we both have friends there. Um, Mark Tushnitz, one of the mentors of my career, um, I think it was a huge mistake. Uh, and the reason I say that, Erwin, is not because I disagree with Scalia's decisions. That's not the reason. You know, when a Princeton student asked him in person, how can you compare homosexual conduct to murder? It was a gay Princeton student. Very moving. I mean, the, the student took a lot of courage for the student to do this. A normal person says, I understand why you're offended. I was making a legal argument. I didn't mean to offend anybody. Here's what I really meant by that, because obviously murder is not homosexual conduct. It's not what Scalia said. He said, I doubled down on it. 
I support it. It's what I said. It's what I meant. I was making a legal argument. Why you, you know, and basically sit down and shut up. So in Harvard's case, and you don't have to comment if you don't want, but in Harvard's case, they easily could have turned down this money. And, and I think it's a real shame that we still idolize this man. I guess that's my feeling about it. Yeah, and I think you raised two things that need to be separate, though they're interrelated. Okay. One is, should we idolize Antonin Scalia? And the other is, when should a university or a law school take a gift in honor of somebody? Those aren't necessarily the same. I don't think we should idolize Antonin Scalia. I think when we look at the body of his jurisprudence, it was very much about taking away freedoms and lessening equality. That's not who we should be honoring. In terms of when do you as a dean or a university president take a gift, even if you're a very wealthy university, that's a much different and harder question. Um, and as I say, as a dean, I have faced that question, not with regard to Anton and Scalia. Right. And uh, we all have lines we have to drop. And there are gifts that I have turned down. On the other hand, I recognize how beneficial financial assistance is. As I say, it leads to student scholarships, faculty support, additional faculty and the like. I really appreciate that. I, I, and I know it's easy for me. It's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback on this issue. I just, um, Scalia's influence both on the country, on the court, and Justice Thomas, all three of those things, um, you know, just make me very sad. And, and I, I wish people would see Scalia for exactly who he was. Um, Ern, you've been in legal education a real, you know, a, a, a fairly long time. I don't want to say I don't want to say really long time, but you but, forty-two years. I'm about to start my forty-third year as a law professor. Wow, you, you are you are twelve years ahead of me, and I feel like I've been in legal education for a very long time. Do you mind if I ask you what changes you've seen? What positive changes you've seen? What negative changes you've seen? I think a lot of, frankly, law students listen to this podcast, or at least from what I can tell from the demographics. So I think that would be a, a helpful thing to hear from you. I think law students are ever more talented and ever more sophisticated when they arrive. I think law students have become much more consumerist. I think his tuition has gone up, fortunately, to very high levels. They've come to demand much more. As a dean, I constantly have students say to me, I'm paying all this, and therefore you should be doing this, yes. or I'm paying all this, and how dare you do that? And I understand their perspective in being consumerist about it. I think law school faculties have changed. Um, you know, now, to get hired as a law professor, having a PhD is often important, or at least doing a visiting assistant professor Having written a substantial amount is essential in order to get hired as a law professor now. I think that then restricts who's likely to be considered. Um, but it's also the reality that the entry-level faculty who we're hiring are far more sophisticated than what entry-level professors were. I would never get hired today. Well, and well hold on, hold on. You would get hired today because you went to Northwestern and Harvard. But I would not get hired today because I went to Emory and Vanderbilt. I'm not embarrassed at all about going to Emory and Vanderbilt. But there's no chance I get hired today. Go ahead. You wrote a wonderful article in the Journal of Legal Education yeah. that talks about who does and doesn't get hired. I think that's changed over time. I'm focusing on something a bit different than your article. I'm focusing on we are now hiring entry-level faculty who have more publications than used to be required for tenure. Right. And I think, I think the academy has become more divorced from the practice of law. I think as we hire more people out of PhD programs who have no practice experience or desire to practice, 
there's a distancing. On the other hand, they bring other things, tools, interdisciplinary perspectives that are enormously important. I think law school education overall in terms of the teaching has gotten much better. Mm-hmm. When I compare the teaching that I had as a law student compared to the teaching that my students overall in the school get today, I think that law schools, part of being more consumerist is education has gotten better. Yeah. Um, do you see a threat in the growing divide between the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society in legal education, um, reflecting the greater polarization in the country? There's no question that in my lifetime, and I, I was, you know, 1968, I was 10, but I was aware of the country burning and the assassinations and all, all that. Um, you're a little older than I am, so you were more... Um, I think this feels worse than that to me. I was not an adult in 1968, but this feels worse. Well, let me ask that question first, because you were you were almost an adult then. Does this feel worse to you than that? I was in high school in 1968, okay. Okay. and so vividly remember the death of Martin Luther King in April, yeah. the death of Bobby Kennedy in June, yeah. the Chicago Democratic Convention in August, yeah. the election of Richard Nixon in November. I think our country is more deeply polarized than it's been at any time since Civil War and maybe Reconstruction. I am more afraid for the future of democracy now than ever imagined I would be in my lifetime. We came so close to losing democracy on January 6th. Right. If Mike Pence had simply followed what Donald Trump and John Eastman wanted and declared Donald Trump president, that would have been the first successful coup in American history. And the armed insurrection that occurred on January 6th can't be regarded as an isolated event of a few crazies. It reflected something deeper in our society. And so when you talk, Eric, about the split between the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, I think it reflects the much larger split ideologically in our society. And I worry about whether our democracy can survive in light of this. So we're heading now a little bit out of either of our expertises, but I do want to ask one more question about this. I was so mad at the Washington Post just two hours ago when they either, I don't know if it was an op-ed or a column or an article, but they did a story on the, on, we're taping this on, when, on Wednesday. It'll probably come out on Friday. Um, Trump's house was raided or searched, I should say, yesterday. They wrote an entire story that was somewhat critical of it without once mentioning. <laughs> in fact, I'm not sure the Washington Post has mentioned this anywhere yet in any of its articles that Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, without whom this search, I think you agree with me on this, could not have happened. There's no way they search an ex-president's house, residence, without the director of the FBI signing on. Do you agree with that, first of all? I agree. I also think the Attorney General Merrick Garland probably approved. And one thing that hasn't been mentioned in stories enough, and a federal district court judge found probable cause, and I'm sure none of them did that lightly. None of us, we haven't seen the affidavit for the search warrant yet. I don't know what they were searching for. There are certain things I'd be critical if that's what they were looking for. Other things I would say were the right thing. But I think it's premature for us to criticize or to praise till we know more. The, the, the specific point I was going to make is Christopher Ray was appointed by Donald Trump. How could that not be part of the... I, in fact, I've seen very little media mentioning, and so that gets back to the conversation we were having. There does seem to me that the media has start ha, that there's a there's a everything has two sides type of um, 
uh, value that the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, um, which, which of course leans strongly conservative, but they all have this, everything has two sides. Ern, I don't think everything has two sides. I don't think Donald Trump has two sides. I don't. Well, I'm going to make two points. One is to agree with that, that I think in the name of responsible journalism, they try to look for people on each side. But I think sometimes that's a mistake. I understand why they want to seem fair and balanced. And I want journalism to be fair and balanced. But there are instances where there's not two sides. And you point to a very important omission, something that should be in the stories. The other, and I apologize if this sounds like a shameless plug. <laughs> it's for a book to not come out for more than a year. But the book I'm working on now, my next book, is titled Bad Bones. And what it argues is that American democracy is in great danger that the Constitution is originally written was deeply flawed. And the mistakes, the tragic choices made in writing the Constitution then are what's responsible for where we are now. That unless we dramatically change or replace the Constitution, it's hard to see us on a path where American democracy can continue to exist. Yeah, I, 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 I have teenage kids, and I deeply worry for them, for that reason. I also want to say, because Sandy Levinson has been a guest on this podcast as well, Sandy has Sandy saw this before most of us did. Uh, 20 years ago, he was talking about how disastrous it is that Inauguration Day, for example, is months away from Election Day. That sounds trivial. Turns out it's not trivial. Turns out January 6th wouldn't have happened unless that had been the case. Um, but he's been writing for a long time that our Constitution is deeply flawed and needs really abandonment and start all over again in many respects. I did not know you felt this way. Can I ask how long you felt this way? I think it's a hard question to answer. Yeah. For some things, I've always been critical. I've always thought that the Electoral College was an abomination in a democratic society. Right. I've always thought that two senators from each state makes no sense from any democratic principle. I've obviously always thought that the Constitution made tragic choices Faustian bargains with regard to slavery and race, choices that continue to haunt us. But it was really after January 6th and the events of late 2020 and early 2021 that I began thinking about why is it that we're in this position and it, recognizing that the Constitution is responsible for so many of the problems with regard to American government today. And in the answer to your more specific point, I've been teaching constitutional law, as I said, for 42 years. My course focuses on the Supreme Court decisions interpreting the Constitution. I have an 1,800-page casebook. It's all <laughs> Supreme Court decisions. Right. It doesn't talk about the Electoral College or two senators per state. And so I think it's recent events that have caused me to focus much more on the Constitution itself and how flawed it is and how we can tie the current crises to those tragic choices. I've, we're running out of time. I can talk to you, and we have talked. I can talk to you for hours, and of course we have, but not, not here, unfortunately, um, because of how busy you are. Um, I appreciate the time you've made for me. Um, I have a kind of an inside baseball question, but I really want to ask it. You are one of the few, and I'm guessing there's five or less law professors in America who are true experts in what's traditionally thought of as constitutional law, First Amendment, 14th Amendment, due process, equal protection, freedom of speech, religion, and the 4th through 8th Amendments, the criminal procedure 
parts of our Constitution, double jeopardy, self-incrimination, et cetera, et cetera. It feels like we have divided the world up into con law professors who do the non-criminal pro stuff and crim pro professors who don't do the other con law stuff. There are a couple others, but, but you're the most prominent. There aren't many, though. Do you know how that happened, why it happened? And it seems kind of silly to me. I agree with you. It's silly because we're talking about the same constitution. Right. <laughs> I'm teaching criminal procedure investigations in the fall, which is about the fourth, fifth, and some of the, right. the sixth amendment. That's the constitution. Right. Um, I know that it used to be that criminal procedure was part of constitutional law. And then it just became too much to cover in constitutional law. And so criminal procedure became its own course. At many law schools like mine, it's even split in half. We have criminal procedures, the investigations part, and criminal procedures, the adjudication part. But I think I could say the same thing, Eric, about a subject that we both teach federal courts. Yes, standing, that standing, which has federal become- Federal courts in that material used to be part of constitutional law. Yeah. Um, I've taught con law, federal courts, and criminal procedure over all the years just because they're all constitutional law. <laughs> right. Um, right. But maybe the answer to your question, I have not thought about this before you asked, Criminal law and criminal procedure tend to attract those whose practitioners were prosecutors or criminal defense lawyers. And so they bring that into teaching criminal procedure rather than starting from the perspective that you or I would as constitutional law professors. Right. And that probably might make sense. And I agree, by the way, I should have said 20 minutes ago, I agree 100% with your point that legal practice as a prerequisite to being a law professor has really dropped out of the equation. Uh, I spent four and a half years at the Department of Justice. I think I got 15 years of experience there. I worked on Iran-Contra. I worked on Lockerbie. I worked on a big First Amendment case. Real practice experience. I would not be the teacher today or the scholar today if I didn't have that experience. Why has that happened? It's very frustrating to me. I have an explanation for that. I think those who have gone through PhD programs have the opportunity to have more scholarship when they go onto the law teaching market. right? They've been writing papers, they're writing a dissertation, and they can publish articles and very sophisticated articles. Those who have done prestigious fellowships and VAPs that allow time to write will also have the publications to do so. It's enormously difficult to go, as I did and I guess you did, right from practice into teaching now, because you don't have the body of scholarship to match those who have gone through PhD programs and fellowships. Yeah. As much as we say we want to give great weight to hiring people with practical experience, once our hiring process focuses, is inevitably a will on scholarly output and quality of the scholarship, those who have PhDs and those who have done fellowships are going to get an advantage. Yeah, I think you're dead right about that. I, I am not agnostic. I think that's a huge mistake for legal education um, based on my 30 years of experience. We have five minutes left. Um, I want to lighten, it, lighten this up a little bit. Um, how many Supreme Court arguments have you done? Seven. And what I know, and of course, since you're always on the correct side, you always lose. Um, well, <laughs> my view of the correct side, anyway. Um, any memorable moments, or what, what is the most memorable argument you've done? And, and, and what is the case you thought you were going to win, or thought you might win that, that the most that you lost? Sure. The most memorable argument was my first, the case called Lockyer versus Andrade, which was decided in 2003. My client, Leandro Andrade, was sentenced to 50 years to life in prison for stealing $150 of the videotapes 
from Kmart stores in San Bernardino, California, under California's Three Strikes Law. I represented him in the Ninth Circuit and won with the Ninth Circuit saying 50 years to life for stealing videotapes is cruel and unusual punishment. I lost in the Supreme Court five to four. The justice is split along ideological lines. Um, in terms of the case I thought I was going to win and I lost, it was a case that I argued in 2005, Van Orden versus Perry. It involves a six foot high, three foot wide, 10 commandments monument that sits right at the corner of the Texas State Capitol and the Texas Supreme Court. And I thought that if I could get Justice O'Connor's vote, I would win. I went in being pretty confident I was going to get Justice Stevens, Sue Ginsburg, and Breyer. Well, I lost 5-4. The four conservatives, Rand, Chris Scalia, Kennedy, and Thomas, I expected I would lose. Breyer concurred in the judgment and went along with them. And I didn't see that one coming. Yeah. I, justice Breyer has done a couple of those over the years. I, I think he was a very good justice, but I think overall, but there's been some big surprises. Uh, his Gratz concurrence, which nobody ever talks about, but but Grutter Gratz with the two affirmative action cases, we're, we're going to be talking all about this next year. Um, he did vote to strike down the University of Michigan College's affirmative action program. It's the only time he ever voted to strike down an affirmative action program. To this day, I have no idea why he did that. It was inconsistent with the rest of his decision. So that was kind of an odd one. But Erwin, um, thank you so much for doing this. I, I um, promised your administrative assistant I would get you out of here in time. So I'm going to do that. She's wonderful, by the way. Um, and uh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. This is such a tremendous pleasure. And I hope you have me back again. It's always just wonderful to talk with you. I, I, I will and we will. Thanks, Erin. Thanks so much. Thank you.